So have you ever been so overwhelmed by something going on in your life that you just couldn't even sleep at night? So, so anxious that you just laid awake all night long, so fearful of what was going to happen that all you could seem to do was just play out this yet actually happened scenario over and over again until the morning finally came and you uh, felt like it was late enough to get up and start a new day. We've all, we've all been there, I think, at some point in our lives when we're overwhelmed, when we're anxious, when we are afraid. Sleep can pass us by. Some of us today are one of those seasons right now. I'm not talking about new moms that are trying to get sleep. I'm not talking about that. You, you, we're praying you get sleep. We're praying your baby sleep. I'm talking about when our hearts are overwhelmed and therefore our eyes are open. I'm talking about the, the, the moments in life where we are so overwhelmed by what is happening to us, what might happen to us, that, that we truly cannot fall asleep at night. But what if I told you that there was someone who had discovered the secret to a good night's sleep in the middle of overwhelming circumstances? That's what we find in Psalm 3. You can open your Bibles to Psalm 3, and as you do, let's just think about how our world uh, wants to help us deal with this problem. Our world tells us today that if we are struggling to sleep because we are overwhelmed, well, well we might hear, you need to get a prescription for some sleep medicine. That'll, that'll do. It'll knock you out. Or we might need to hear something about removing ourselves from toxic situations, and if we just remove ourselves from anything that, that is harmful, then, then we'll sleep well. Or we need to listen to meditations at night as we fall asleep that give us positive self-affirmations while we go to bed. Many things that the world might offer us to help us go to sleep. But here in Psalm 3 is someone who has truly figured out how to go to sleep when life is overwhelming. And here's the big secret by trusting in the promises of God. By trusting in the promises of God. Now, before you discount this simply as an easy Bible answer, you're the pastor, you're going to tell us just trust in God and you'll sleep better. Before you discount that as just not connected to the real world, consider the circumstances of Psalm 3. We have in Psalm 3 a title to the psalm, a superscription that tells us who wrote this psalm and what was going on when he did. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So this tells us that Psalm 3 was written by King David during the events that are recorded in 2 Samuel 15-17. through 17. David's son, Absalom, had conspired against his father. He had turned the hearts of Israel against David and toward himself, and he was carrying out his plan to take the kingdom. David and his servants had to flee Jerusalem for their very lives. And on top of this, David's former counselor was urging Absalom, David's son, to send 12,000 troops to overtake David and to strike him down. So family betrayal, national uprising, immediate threat. This is what was going on in the life of King David when he wrote Psalm 3. These are the overwhelming circumstances in which David will say, I lay down and slept. And if he could sleep in these circumstances, then we should pay close attention to this psalm. Let's listen to the words of Psalm 3. O Lord... How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. 
But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be on your people. As we work through this psalm today, I want to remind you that these are not just the words of any old Israelite. These are the words of King David. These are the words of the Lord's anointed king. As we saw in Psalm 2 a few weeks ago, these are the words of the one that God has set on his holy hill and through whom God has vowed to fulfill all of his redemptive purposes for his people. And yet, here we are in Psalm 3, King David's throne has been taken and the purposes of God hang in the balance. Well, today we're going to see five things in this psalm of this divinely chosen yet dethroned and fleeing king. Five things that we're going to see in his psalm today. First, the king's foes. The king's foes. David says, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Now, Over the first few weeks of our series in the Psalms, we talked about how Psalms 1 and 2 serve as a kind of gateway into the book of Psalms. Uh, They describe the blessedness of the righteous man. They describe the significance of God's anointed king. Taken together, they hold out to us the hope that God's people will be blessed in the Lord's chosen king of righteousness. That's what Psalms 1 and 2 tell us. And yet, what is the first thing that we see when we get through the door And now we're standing fully inside the sanctuary of the Psalms. What's the first thing that we see? The king that has been chosen by God, appealing to God to recognize his many enemies. God's chosen king, the one that God himself had set on the throne, is making it known to the Lord that there's an uprising going on. His throne is being taken out from under him. He is on the run and there are so many enemies. How many enemies? have risen against me. There are too many to fight back. You can feel how overwhelmed David is by the sheer number of enemies that have risen. How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul. But the most trying part of it all is what they're saying, what these enemies are saying at the end of verse 2. They're saying there is no salvation for him in God. You see, there are two levels to what's going on in David's life right now. There's the external story. There are the facts as we can see them. King David's throne has been taken over by his son Absalom and David is fleeing Jerusalem. That's what is going on. But there's another level, which is the interpretive level. What does this event mean? How should this event in David's life be interpreted? If King David has been dethroned, well, does this mean that the Lord has turned against his chosen king? As David flees Jerusalem, is he fleeing as someone who's no longer blessed by God? 
You see, as Absalom and his men took over the kingdom, this is how some were interpreting the event. God is no longer for King David. There is no salvation for him in God. And in fact, this interpretation is not very hard to come to if we remember what happened just prior to the Absalom story in 2 Samuel. Just before this story begins, we read the story of how David stole another man's wife and ordered for that man to be killed in battle in order to hide it. David had committed adultery and then murder to try and cover it up. How easy it would have been for David to believe what his enemies were saying about him. How easy it would have been for David to say in his heart, they're right. I blew it. God isn't for me anymore. I deserve this. In the midst of the overwhelming circumstances he found himself in, there was an overwhelming battle in his soul over what it means. How to interpret that event. And church, we are always making interpretations about the things that are happening in our lives. When something's happening to us, we draw interpretive conclusions about why that thing is happening. And as we do this, we are prone to interpret life like David's enemies interpreted what was going on in his life. Here's what happens. We find ourselves in a particular trial, and then we reason like this. Because this trial is happening to me, it must mean that God has turned against me. Because this suffering is going on, it must mean that God is somehow displeased with me. If God was for me, then this would not be happening. You see, we are tempted to draw a direct line from our difficulties to God's displeasure. And we interpret what's happening to us to mean that God is somehow against us. But this morning's psalm gives us another way. This morning's psalm teaches us not to interpret our standing with God or our relationship with God based on what we're experiencing. Instead, we must interpret our standing with God based on God's promises, based on God's word. You see, though many were saying that there was no salvation for David in God, as for David, by faith, he believes in God's own interpretation. This leads us to the second section of the psalm, the king's faith. The king's faith. Verse 3 says this, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. You see, though many enemies are rising against him, and many are claiming that God himself has turned against him, David confidently praises the Lord as his shield, his glory, and the lifter of his head. You know, think if David had lived in our day, 3,000 years later, And if he had seen a few different sci-fi movies, he might have written, but you, O Lord, are my force field. (laughs) He does the best he can to describe something he doesn't quite know, but, but he doesn't just say God is his shield. He says, you are a shield about me, which is to say that the shield is not just in front of him. The shield that is the Lord surrounds him on all sides. It is a picture of God's complete and impenetrable protection over his life. You are a shield that surrounds me. You are all around me. David not only praises God as the one who protects him, but also the one who exalts him, my glory and the lifter of my head. Now, this verse 
And this affirmation from David is even weightier if we consider the way that David fled Jerusalem. Listen to how 2 Samuel 15 describes David and his fleeing from Absalom. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. That's 2 Samuel. That's David leaving Jerusalem as his son has taken the throne and turned Israel away from him. He ascends the Mount of Olives weeping, barefoot, head covered. He departed in humiliation and grief. He departed with his head down. And yet, he still praises the Lord as my glory and the lifter of my head. In the midst of that humiliation, in the midst of that grief, he praises God as the one who he knew would exalt him yet again. Understand, church, that these are statements of faith. David doesn't wonder if the Lord is his shield. He knows that the Lord is his shield. He doesn't hope that the Lord is his glory. He's assured that the Lord is his glory. He doesn't wish that the Lord would lift his head. He believes the Lord will lift his head. Despite what's happening to him, what's being said about him, King David believed that the Lord is nevertheless absolutely for him. He's confident. The question is, why? Why does David believe this? Why is he so confident, especially in light of the sins he's committed? What makes David so confident that this is true? This this is a really important question for us as we read Psalms like this one, because We might just assume that as long as we believe the Lord is our shield, then that means he's our shield. As long as we believe he's going to lift our head, then he will lift our head. But God's not just a shield to anyone who says, you're my shield. No, God is a shield for his people. On the other hand, we'll see in just a few verses, God breaks the teeth of the wicked. Not anyone can say, you are my shield. And what this means is that we can't just turn to Psalm 3 and just make David's assertion our own on our own. We can't just say, you are my shield, and have that be objectively true. We need to know what gave David assurance that God was actually for him. And the answer comes in verse 4. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Notice that David doesn't say that the Lord's answer to his cry comes from heaven. We, we, We might expect that, right? I cried to the Lord, he answered me from heaven. He sits in the heavens. No, the Lord answers from his holy hill. This is the same holy hill that the Lord refers to in Psalm 2, verse 6, when he says to the nations who are raging against him and against the anointed, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The holy hill is the place of the Davidic covenant. You see, David directs his prayer to the Lord on the basis of, of the Lord's special covenant promise that he made to him as Israel's king. The Lord has brought David into a relationship of sonship and of promise, and David is believing the promise. David's assurance that the Lord will protect him, that the Lord will exalt him, it's based in the Lord's special promises to him. He doesn't just believe God is for him because he's some spiritual optimist. No, he believes God is for him because God has promised that he will be for him. Well, we might still ask, what about a sin, though? Doesn't, doesn't David's sin change things? If we follow the historical narrative, 
It tells us that David's sin with Bathsheba came after God's covenant promise. So, so did that sin disqualify David from the promise? Well, again, David believed in the word of God. When the prophet Nathan rebuked David for his sin, David responded in confession and repentance. And then Nathan said these words to David in 2 Samuel 12, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. That is, the Lord has forgiven you, David, for what you've done. The Lord has wiped your sins away. The Lord will not treat you as your sins deserve. The Lord will continue his promise to you according to his steadfast love. And when David was fleeing from Absalom, and when his enemies were saying there's no salvation for him in God, David trusted in this declaration of forgiveness, and David trusted in the continuance of the promise. Despite what he had done, he trusted that because of God's grace, God was still for him. He trusted what God said more than what his enemies said. This is the battle that we must fight whenever our circumstances overwhelm us. Whose interpretation will we trust? Whose interpretation of what we're going through are we going to trust? Will we listen to the voice of our enemy? Will we listen to the voice of Satan? Will we listen to the voice in our own heads that tells us God isn't for you anymore? Or will we listen to the voice of God? Will we trust the promises of God? Will we believe in the forgiveness of God and say with confidence, You, Lord, are my shield and my glory and the lifter of my head. And we need to see this, church, that when we're going through something hard, when something's happening to us, the battle that we're fighting is not out there. The battle we're fighting is not what's happening out there. The battle is in our hearts. It's the fight of faith that's happening in our hearts through those circumstances. When our circumstances overwhelm us, like David, will we have faith in God's word and God's grace and God's promises? This is the king's faith, and it brings us to the third section of the psalm, the king's peace. The king's peace. David says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. If we read that without context, we we don't quite get the meaning of it. David, when he says, I lay down and slept, remember, he's he's laying down to sleep with the knowledge that 12,000 troops could be coming to kill him. (laughs) And if I knew that someone was going to try to break into my house tonight, I wouldn't sleep. But he knows, he knows that his life is under threat, and yet he says, I lay down and slept. We need to see two two simple truths in his words here. First, faith brings peace. Faith brings peace. We can't miss the connection between the king's faith and the king's peace. David has a multitude of foes plotting to take his very life, and yet because he's trusting in God's promise, he's able to lay down and go to sleep. Though his circumstances are utterly overwhelming, because of his faith in the Lord's sustaining hand, David is able to close his eyes that night, confident that he'll wake up safe in the morning. Faith brings peace. And related, faith expels fear. 
Faith expels fear. David will not fear, even if thousands of enemies surround him on all sides, even if all 12,000 troops come. David is assured that the Lord is a shield about him, surrounding him on all sides. David knows that even if Absalom sends his troops, they could never penetrate the Lord's protection over him. He knows this because he believes the promise that God is for him and no one can succeed against him. Faith expels fear. And church, this morning, I want us to face this truth head on without any qualifications. We could, we could make qualifications in so many ways to what I'm about to say, but, but there's a fundamental, real truth we need to just face head on. Our fears reveal our little faith. Our fears reveal our little faith. Our worries and anxieties, our sleepless nights, and for me, our churning stomachs sometimes. These are a litmus test that indicate the presence of unbelief. And don't get me wrong, it's not that our fears are illegitimate. We live in a dangerous and broken world it constantly threatens the things we value the most. Our, our health is threatened. Our security is threatened. Our families are threatened. Nearly everything that we care about is vulnerable. It's just the way it is. But if we truly believe that the Lord is our shield and our glory, our protector, our exalter, that his, he is for us and not against us, as we just saying, if we truly believe that, then our fears will be expelled and God's peace will flood our hearts. And so when you are having a sleepless night, when, when you are overwhelmed with worry and anxiety, understand that, that this is a grace from God to you to see that there's something off with my faith right now. My, 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 where is my trust? What am I believing? You see, it's David's faith that made him fearless, and it's David's faith that ultimately gave him a good night's sleep that night. That being said, David's faith was not passive. It was active in exactly the way faith should be active. It leads us to the fourth section of the psalm, the king's prayer. The king's prayer. I'm going to draw your attention back to verse 1. First, David tells the Lord in verse 1 that he has many enemies who are rising against him. Many enemies who are saying that God will not save him. That's what's going on. Now look at his prayer in verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. In other words, arise against those who are rising against me. Save me from those who are saying you won't save me. David prays that God will defeat his opposition. He prays that God will vindicate his promise. And again, this prayer is rooted in faith. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Here, David envisions the Lord rising up and delivering a knockout punch against his enemies. A jaw-breaking blow from which they do not get up. But notice, this is not a request. He doesn't say, arise, save, strike, break. No, he says, for you strike, my enemies. For you break the teeth of the wicked. He's saying, Lord God, this is what you do. You are the one who strikes my enemies. You are the one who breaks the teeth of the wicked. David's prayer is rooted again in his belief in God's promises that we saw in Psalm 2. The raging nations will not win. The people's plots will be in vain. Those who oppose him oppose the God who's appointed him, and they will perish in the way. David believes all this. He knows it's true, and so he prays for God to act accordingly. Here we have another litmus test for faith. 
not only sleeplessness, but prayerlessness. When you're overwhelmed, when you're afraid, when you're anxious, how long does it take before you begin to pray? Another psalm says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. And so fear will happen to us. How much time does it take between that moment of fear and that moment of prayer? And when you pray, do you pray according to the promises of God? Do you look upward and outward, away from yourself, above your situation, to the God who sits in the heavens and hears from his holy hill? In the midst of overwhelming opposition, David believed in the promises of God and therefore he prayed according to those promises. Having made his petition known, he adds one final line to the psalm. We see the king's hope in verse 8. He's overwhelmed by his enemies, and yet he comes to the Lord. And as he comes to the Lord, in this feeling of being overwhelmed, he remembers God's promises. He, he places his faith in the Lord's word. He moves from fear to peace through that faith. He prays for God to act. And now he concludes his song by affirming his hope. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. So what does it mean to say that something belongs to somebody? You know, when we closed on our house, the closing attorney at some point gave us the key and said, this house now belongs to you. It's officially yours. And that meant that from then on, but not a moment before, but from then on, we could do what we wanted to do with that house. We can live in it, we can change it, we can sell it again, but once it belongs to us, we have the right to do with it what we want. Well, what does it mean that salvation belongs to the Lord? Well, it means that God alone has the right to exercise deliverance. No one can say to the Lord, you owe me salvation. And at the same time, no one can stop God from saving whomever he chooses to save. Salvation is solely God's prerogative. It belongs to him. Now, of course, in this psalm, David's asking the Lord to save him, and David's confident that he will save him because of his promises to him. But for what end? Why should David be so confident that God will save him? What's the point of this covenant anyways? Why would God choose to save David well, the answer is that God's covenant with David, David understood that it was an extension of his covenant with Abraham. It was a covenant which promised that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. David understood his place in the history of what God was doing. What that means is that ultimately David's salvation wasn't just about David. No, David's salvation was about the salvation of God's people. David understood that in my salvation is the fulfillment of your redemptive purposes. And this is why David closes the psalm this way. Your blessings be on your people. Your blessing be on your people. He understood that his salvation would bring blessing to God's people. The salvation of the Lord's anointed king would bring salvation blessings to all who took refuge in him. And we see here that even as David looked to the Lord for personal salvation, even as he's, he's in this situation, he's praying, God, hear me, save me, uh, uh, vindicate me, defeat my enemies, his hope was not self-focused. His hope was that God's people would be blessed in his salvation as God's chosen king. 
We can learn something from that just as an application that when we are in trials, when we're looking to God to, to move, to act, to save, to deliver, we need to remember it's not about us. It's about his glory. It's about his work. And, and we pray, God, act in my life, ultimately not for my sake, but for the glory of your name and whatever you choose and whenever you choose to do it. Salvation belongs to you. This was the hope of the king. This was the song that the Spirit of God filled David's heart with as he fled from Absalom, his son. It's a song of faith and confidence in the midst of overwhelming circumstances. Even when everything seemed like God had turned against David, he was able to sing this song in the Lord's salvation. But before we can join in the song today, we need to hear how this song came across the lips of the son of David, Jesus Christ. David sang this song as he fled Jerusalem, and he wept while ascending the Mount of Olives, singing this song. But Jesus would have sung this song as he also left Jerusalem and ascended a different mountain, as he ascended the hill of Golgotha. We can picture Good Friday, we can, we can picture the scene, and we can hear the words on Jesus' lips as he was crucified with enemies all around him. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? How many are rising against me? How many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God? This is what was happening to Jesus on Golgotha, on the cross. People all around him saying, God's not going to save him. Mocking him, taunting him, saying, he said he was the Messiah. He said he was the Lord's anointed. Look at him now. God's turned against him. And yet, as that was happening, we can hear the inner confidence of Jesus despite that outward opposition. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cry aloud to the Lord and he answers me from his holy hill. Despite Jesus' experience of suffering and rejection, despite the voices calling out that God would not save him, Jesus knew who he was. He knew he was the Lord's anointed king, and he believed that the Father would protect and exalt him. Except, here we find that David's and Jesus' experience differed. David did go to sleep, and his enemies never did come, and they never, they never did take his life, and he did wake up again. But what about Jesus? Well, Jesus was actually crucified. Jesus actually died. His foes actually succeeded in what they were seeking to do. At least it seemed that way, except that Jesus could also pray the next line of this psalm in a way that David never did. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. You see, on the cross, in full faith and in perfect peace, Jesus' last words to the Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he slept. He slept the sleep of death that we all deserve. He slept in a grave on that Sabbath day. And then when Sunday morning came, he woke again. His eyes opened. He had resurrection life. God the Father didn't protect Jesus from death. He delivered him through death. And then he exalted him to his right hand. And through his resurrection, Jesus was set as king forever on God's holy hill. Jesus lay down and slept and awoke again through his death and resurrection. 
And as we see that, as we see how Jesus lived out the fulfillment of of David's experience in Psalm 3, finally we can begin to find our own voice in this psalm. What does it mean for us to sing Psalm 3 today? Three things I want to help us see as as we try to figure out how, how do we sing this psalm as the church. First, we begin at the end. We begin at the end. Salvation belongs to the Lord your blessing be on your people. So, so as we try to sing Psalm 3 for ourselves, we need to recognize at the very outset that we are not David in this psalm. We aren't David. David was the king who pointed to Jesus Christ the king, and we are the people who are blessed in the king's salvation. So instead of being delivered from death, Jesus died the death that we deserve to die, and then he rose again victorious. God has exalted his anointed king, and in his salvation, we are blessed. In his salvation, we get the blessings of redemption. So we sing this psalm by rejoicing in the salvation blessings that have come to us through the king's death and resurrection. When we sing Psalm 3, we we proclaim that the Lord's anointed king has risen again, he has, God has overcome his enemies. They said there was no salvation for him in God, but the Lord has resurrected him and vindicated him. Your blessing be on your people. We are blessed in his victory. We are blessed in his resurrection. We are blessed in the vindication of our king. So we begin at the end. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Second, we join, we join in David's confidence. Because we are in this king, only then, once we're in this king, can we sing the song of David for ourselves. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. You see, again, here's the thing. When we're tempted to interpret our circumstances as a sign that God has turned against us, or that God is displeased with us, or that God, God, is, God is somehow, we're not in his favor anymore. When we're, when we're tempted to interpret life that way, we cling to the reality that we are blessed in Jesus' victory, and we confidently assert by faith that God will protect us and God will exalt us. We refuse to believe that there's no salvation for us because Jesus slept the sleep of death that we deserve, and he woke again. And so we do not fear, no matter how overwhelming life is. Because Jesus died for our sins and he reigns on the throne. We sing this psalm by believing in God's promises no matter what is happening in our lives. No matter what is going on, we believe that God is our shield and our glory because Jesus died and rose again. And so we begin at the end, we join in David's confidence, and finally we pray for our king to arise. We pray for our king to arise. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Jesus has died and Jesus has risen again, but we die and still wait for resurrection. Jesus has been delivered to glory, but we still wait for that deliverance. Jesus is no longer surrounded by enemies, but the church is still pressed down and persecuted all around the globe. And so even As David directed his prayer to God, so we direct our prayers now to the exalted Lord Jesus. And we sing Psalm 3 whenever we pray, come Lord Jesus. Arise, O God, save us. Come Lord Jesus. This psalm reminds us that we're waiting for that final day of deliverance and that final day of vindication. This psalm is 
an end times psalm as much as it is a first coming psalm. And as we wait for that day by faith, even when we face the most overwhelming circumstances, do you know what? In the confidence that Jesus will answer that prayer, that he will hear us from his holy hill and that he will come again, in that confidence we can lay down and we can sleep at night. And so with all these things in mind, I want to invite you this morning to stand with me again and join me as we read Psalm 3 aloud as a confident song of faith in Jesus our Savior King. So let's stand and read Psalm 3 together. not sure it's on the screen, so if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 3 and let's read out of the ESV together. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Our Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus, who came and lived out the realities of Psalm 3, surrounded by enemies and given over to the sleep of death so that our sins could be atoned for. And in his resurrection, we can have assurance that we are blessed. Oh Lord, I pray that this morning, because of this psalm, anyone in this room that is facing overwhelming circumstances, deep fear, sleepless nights, that they would find the peace that comes through faith that we are blessed in Jesus. Because he died and rose again, your blessing is on our lives. And you will deliver us into final salvation. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.